On March 18, 2011, the Mexican municipality of Allende was the scene of one of the country's worst and most heinous human rights atrocities. A three-day rampage that accompanied a larger outbreak of violence in which Las Zetas cartel kidnapped, murdered, and later burned the bodies of as many as 300 victims. Later incinerating and leaving their remains in piles of ash, bits of teeth, and bone fragments for the locals and authorities to find. Welcome to Baggage Unclaimed. In this episode, we shall be delving into the Allen Day Massacre of 2011. This was a barbaric, sadistic, and sickening act of brutality and violence against innocent victims conducted by Las Zetas. They were at their prime right before CJNG, their formidable rival, was formed. Needless to say, they were running fast and loose with the law, heavily militarized with a vast network of foot soldiers and rock-solid leadership. I think it is safe to say they were drunk with power. From the mayor's office to top police commanders to ordinary cops on the street, the town was nearly entirely controlled by Las Zetas at the time. Locals recounted how Las Zetas degraded and criminalized Allen Day's public security forces, with the latter routinely participating in kidnappings, killings, and other crimes on the group's behalf. Let us just say Allen Day was a brutal place to live during this period, considering the never-ending threat of the mighty Las Zetas running the joint. You either got with the program, or stayed the fuck out of their way. As we'll see in this episode, minding your own business and staying out of their way wasn't enough to keep you safe. Las Edas targeted the northern municipalities of Allende, Piedras Negras, Nava, Zaragoza, and Morelos, all close to the U.S. border, in March and April 2011. Daily firepower, burning down businesses, terrorizing the locals, simply being all-around bad dudes for most of this period. Allende is a peaceful ranching town of around 23,000 people located about 40 minutes from Eagle Pass, Texas. Entire blocks of the town's busiest streets were destroyed. With gaping holes in the walls, burned ceilings, shattered marble counters, and toppled columns, formerly opulent residences were now disintegrating shells. Shoes, wedding invites, medications, television sets, kids' toys, clothes, kitchenware, and other shredded mud-covered possessions were scattered among the ruins. Approximately 40 homes and seven ranches were looted and torched. The Massacre On the evening of March 18, 2011, as the sun began to set, Las Zetas foot soldiers began pouring into Allende. The militants descended on several neighboring ranches along a dimly lit two-lane roadway a few miles outside the town center. The Garzas, one of Allende's oldest families, owned the properties. The family primarily kept livestock and handled odd contracting work, such as coal mining. However, family members claimed that some of them worked in the narco world. Those connections were now becoming fatal. Jose Luis Garza Jr., a relatively low-level narco operative whose father, Luis Garza Sr., controlled one of the ranches, was one of the individuals Las Zetas dude suspected of being a snitch. Wrongly, it turns out. It was payday, and a number of workers had gone to the ranch to collect their pay. One of the first Zetas to arrive at Luis Garza's ranch that night was Jose Alfredo Jimenez, also known as El Pajaro, which loosely means the bird, was recruited by Las Zetas as a halcon, which loosely means hawk, in the summer of 2010, to keep a close eye on rival gangs. Stayed in federal security services, and anything else, that might threaten Las Zetas' operations in the region. 
Jimenez earned roughly 8,000 pesos, about $700, each month from the position, plus expenses. Local Zeta's officials, according to Jimenez, sent him to the ranch as part of an all-out assault on the Garza family's people and property. The plan was to, quote, kidnap and kill everyone. We all went in shooting and tied up everyone we found inside the ranch. There were approximately 7 to 10 people that we tied up. I recognized several, since I knew them, because we were from the same municipality of Allende, where I live. Herman Zaragoza Sanchez, also known as El Canelo, was a top Zeta's boss in Allende, who oversaw a crew of hawks who monitored and reported on the activities of state and federal security forces. According to El Canelo, up to 60 Zeta killers may have taken part in the Allende operation, kidnapping victims from the nearby communities and dumping them at the Garza ranch to be executed and their remains incinerated. When the gunmen arrived, they rounded up everyone they could and started their rampage. Not much of this event is well documented, since there are no living eyewitnesses to this first round of events. It is safe to assume the hostages were interrogated about the matter of Jose Luis Garza Jr., whom they had wrongly suspected of being a snitch, after which they were all slaughtered, their remains soaked in fuel, stuffed in oil drums and stored in large barns at the ranch. Flames erupted from one of the ranch's enormous cinder block storage facilities after dark. After shooting and killing the majority of the victims, they roughly incinerated their remains, dousing them in gasoline and diesel fuel, and burning them overnight until nothing but ashes and minuscule bone fragments remained. At the ranch's entrance, various units of the municipal police were seen, including police director Roberto Guadalupe Trevino Martinez and shift commanders Maria Guadalupe Avalas Orozco and Rogelio Javier Flores Cruz, who were identified as vital links between the police and Las Zetas. Now get this, the police who are naturally supposed to protect and serve the community were standing guard at the torture ranch. It is awfully frightening to know that you are living in a town that has been overrun by lunatics with guns and a temper to match, and the police are working with them. I cannot even begin to imagine how the locals must have felt in those couple of days. This kind of feels like a scene out of The Purge. The former Allende municipal firefighter later recounted. Quote. There was a red truck with wooden enclosures that was parked near the large barn that was inside the ranch. And you could see that they were unloading large barrels, and the smell of diesel or gasoline was evident. When the Zetas became aware of our presence, and that we were there to put out the fire, they said to us, you guys get the fuck out of here. Go fuck your mothers. Or do you want the same thing to happen to you and your family? So the moment that we were leaving the place out of fear of the threats made by these people, and because the police were attending to them, the people of Las Zetas put the entire ranching family into the large barn, along with various other people who I saw clearly, but who I did not know. I did not know exactly what happened with them. End quote. Remember, these firefighters were called in by the locals due to the giant fires that were already burning at the ranch. Various ranch houses had been set ablaze by this now. The firefighters could not get involved since it was evident that the police were working with Las Zetas in this operation. Before fleeing for their lives, they witnessed the start of Las Zetas' frighteningly systematic process of destroying the remains of their victims in order to eliminate the major evidence of the crimes. The narco-lingo, a cook is someone, usually a dude, whose job is to make dead bodies disappear. They have various insane signature methods, like dissolving bodies in acid, grinding bodies to small pieces, or incineration. That being said, one of the cooks that participated in the Allende massacre, later recounted his experiences, quote. 
Later, we began to cook the corpses that we were left with, and to do this, we looked for a space inside the same ranch near the corrals, and later, a truck of Zetas brought some barrels and a pickaxe. We made holes in the bottom, and on the sides of the barrels, and they were like trash barrels made of sheet metal or iron, and after making the holes, I remember that El Chango and I took one of the bodies from the truck, and put it in a barrel. And as there were three barrels, we put one dead body in each barrel. I want to point out, that I did not know any of the dead. And when we had them in the barrels, El Chango began to bathe the corpses in diesel, so that they could then be set on fire, and I was then sent to keep a lookout a few meters away, to make sure that no one was coming. And after 5 or 6 hours during which the corpses were cooked, it was then around 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning. At the moment the cooking of the corpses was finished, the ashes were thrown in a well, and later covered with earth, and the well was flattened, so that no one could see anything. End quote. From Allenday, the gunmen moved north along the dry and flat landscape, rounding up people as they covered the 35 miles to the city of Piedras Negras, a mucky expanse of assembly factories on the Rio Grande, and taking them back to the ranch to be killed and incinerated. Many of the victims, including Gerardo Heath, a 15-year-old high school football player, and Edgar Vila, a 36-year-old industrial engineer, were driven to one of the Garza ranches by the attackers. Neither had anything to do with the cartel, or those whom the cartel suspected of collaborating with the DEA. They were simply in their way at the wrong time. Claudia Sanchez, director of cultural affairs in the town, and mother of victim Gerardo Heath, describes her last moments with her son, quote. I was packing since we were departing at 5 a.m. the next morning for a football game in San Antonio. We needed to arrive early because Gerardo was playing. Outside, Gerardo and his sister were having a good time. When I peeked out the window, I noticed two of Gerardo's friends were approaching. They lived next door to us. Gerardo came inside and asked if he could go out with his friends. To which she replied, quote, No Gerardo. We've got to pack. Next thing I knew, Gerardo had on the clothes we had bought him for his birthday. He had just turned 15. The shirt was blue, and it matched his eyes. She recalled. Come on mom. I won't be late. He insisted. Fine Gerardo, don't be late. She reluctantly agreed. Little did she know that moment would be the last time she ever saw young Gerardo ever again. At around 10 that night, my husband called Gerardo's phone to see what time he'd be coming home. Gerardo didn't answer. My husband called again. No answer. A while later, someone knocked on our door. They were a couple of friends of Gerardo's from school. They looked terrified. I asked them, what's the matter? Where's Gerardo? They took him. They replied. The boy said they saw Gerardo and our neighbors in front of the neighbor's house. A truck came, carrying a lot of men with guns. The men forced the neighbors and Gerardo into the truck and drove away. The boys told me they didn't recognize the men. And since they had weapons, the boys didn't dare say anything. Within minutes, we called the mayor of Piedras Negras. He was attending a wedding. He said that he felt terrible about what had happened to us, but there wasn't anything he could do. Not a single police car came. She tearfully narrated. End quote. The gunman summoned numerous heavy equipment operators the next morning, Saturday, March 19th, and instructed them to demolish scores of homes and businesses across the region. Many of the properties were in bustling and well-to-do neighborhoods, with government buildings, police stations, and military bases all within sight or hearing distance. The gunmen allowed residents to grab everything they wanted, setting off a looting frenzy. 
they used the locals to destroy their own neighborhoods. I'm guessing they were trying to pull off a Robin Hood stunt by primarily targeting richer communities and allowing the rest to freely loot and steal shit. This is why in most of the photos you'll notice the meticulous destruction of property. Entire buildings were demolished, or the heavy metal windows and doors jerked out of the walls. During this time, they arbitrarily murdered anyone and everyone who got in their way. Even those that didn't get in their way were killed nonetheless. Locals were killed in various gruesome ways, and their remains incinerated. This is the main reason this massacre did not garner mainstream attention until a couple of years later. Since all the bodies were burnt to ashes, the extent of their torture and sadism is not very well documented and available online, as we often see in the various videos and photos of Las Zetas in action. It is said there are some photos and videos of what happened, but they were never released by the Zetas foot soldiers who conducted the massacre. So basically, it is considered lost media. Property damage, on the other hand, is still very visible to this day. The Aftermath Despite plenty of other incriminating testimonies about his role in the massacre, former Allende mayor, Sergio Lozano was released from pre-trial custody in February 2017, when a Mexican court ruled that the evidence was insufficient to condemn him. Prosecutors disagreed, claiming that Lozano worked with Las Zetas, knew about the attacks before they started, and failed to defend the residents of Allende. In March 2018, a new detention order was issued for Lozano, but little is known about how the case has progressed. DT is unclear whether prosecutors have ever filed charges against police director Roberto Guadalupe Trevino Martinez, who was seen outside the Garza ranch, and who witnesses claim was aware of the attacks before they happened. However as the investigation gained traction in 2014, dozens of people, including local firefighters, law enforcement officers, civilian eyewitnesses and municipal officials, came forward to describe a city government that was almost completely deeply embedded in Las Zetas' criminal structure including the mayor and top police officials. Almost everyone interviewed felt that the increase in violence and general pattern of police cooperation with Las Zetas had been visible for at least a year or two prior to the March 2011 massacre. One former member of the Allende police interviewed in July 2014 told investigators, quote, From the moment that I joined the ranks of the municipal police, I realized that all of the people I mentioned previously, including the mayor, the police director, police commander, and the shift commanders, were linked to the Zeta's criminal organization. End quote. Everyone including Allende municipal officials and locals, knew about the 2011 massacre, but were too afraid to say anything against the mighty Las Zetas. Doing this literally meant signing a death warrant for them and their immediate family. It was safer to shut the fuck up and act like nothing happened. According to the evidence, the police would also arrest and detain people wanted by Las Zetas, keeping them in the city jail until the Zeta dudes arrived to take them away. In his declaration, a police radio operator who worked closely with shift commanders claimed that a high-ranking Zetas member would occasionally come by the police station and take people from city jail cells with the knowledge of the police director and commander, both of whom, he claimed, were paid by Las Zetas. In exchange for their cooperation, Las Zetas paid most officers 2,000 to 3,000 pesos per month, this was about $175 to $260. These were delivered by hand, in yellow envelopes. Some cooperated more than others. Many needed the money. Few had the courage to defy Las Zetas. This frequently resulted in their disappearances or something accidentally happening to them. How it all started.
After a series of surprise busts in the Dallas suburbs, the DEA initiated Operation Too Legit to Quit. Police discovered $802,000 neatly packed and stashed in the gas tank of a pickup truck. The driver claimed to work for a man only known as El Diablo, or the Devil. This 802 case somewhat led to the Allen Day Massacre. After more arrests, DEA agent Richard Martinez and assistant U.S. attorney, Ernest Gonzalez determined that El Diablo was Jose Vasquez Jr., a 30-year-old Dallas native who began selling drugs in high school and was now the leading Las Zetas cocaine distributor in East Texas, moving truckloads of drugs, guns, and money each month. This dude started his thing at a really young age. That is being quite career-oriented if you ask me. At only 30 years old, this dude was a big fish. El Diablo sneaked across the border to Allende, where he sought protection from members of the cartel's inner circle, as authorities prepared to arrest him. The special agents, on the other hand, saw his escape as an opportunity. If they could persuade El Diablo to assist, it would give them rare access to the cartel's highest levels and an opportunity to apprehend its leaders, particularly the Trevino brothers, who had murdered their way into the DEA's top target list. These were Miguel Angel Trevino, alias C-40, and Omar Trevino Morales, alias C-42. Special agents were after the Trevino's BlackBerry phone's trackable personal identification numbers. El Diablo had left the agents plenty of leverage. His mother and wife were still in Texas. Basically, he was fucked and had no option but to cooperate with the special agents. To evade capture, Las Zetas' top leadership had Mario Alfonso, alias Poncho, their closest lieutenant in Coahuila, provide them with new phones every three or four weeks for security reasons. Hector Moreno. Mario Alfonso's right-hand man was tasked with purchasing the phones. Under pressure to get the phone's personal identification numbers, El Diablo turned to Moreno, using a little leverage of his own. Moreno's brother, Gilberto Moreno, was the dude who was captured driving the vehicle with $802,000 in the tank earlier. Gilberto, who was facing a sentence of 20 years in prison, admitted to working with Las Zetas and that the money belonged to the Trevino brothers. El Diablo arranged for his fancy lawyer in Dallas to represent Gilberto and promised not to let anyone else in the cartel know about Gilberto's incriminating statements. This favor was to incentivize Hector Moreno to give him the personal identification numbers of the Trevino brothers. About three weeks after El Diablo provided the personal identification numbers to the DEA, the cartel's leaders got word that one of their own had betrayed them and they launched a frenzy of retribution. When the Allen Day Massacre broke out, El Diablo, Moreno, Pancho, and Garza, whose family's ranch was the location of the massacre, fled to the United States and agreed to comply with U.S. law enforcement in exchange for leniency. Their harrowing tales of what was happening in Allen Day alerted American authorities to the disaster they had created. So, in essence, the Allen Day Massacre was directly caused by a major miscalculation and strategy by the United States law enforcement. It may not seem that black and white, but if you carefully follow the chain of events that led to the massacre, you will clearly notice it started with the 802K that I mentioned earlier. Number of the dead and missing varies wildly between the official count of 28 and the one derived from victims' accounts and testimonies, about 300. Considering how incompetent the authorities in Allende were at the time, I think it is safe to assume that the actual number of victims is much higher than 28. May all the victims of the Allen Day Massacre of 2011 rest in peace. Thank you for being with me on this episode of Baggage Unclaimed. Please subscribe, leave a like or comment. Your engagement helps keep the lights on around here, and if you'd like to support us even further, please consider becoming a channel member. Link in the description.